Howdy, everybody. Welcome to Open Door Philosophy. I'm Andrew Graziano, and over there is the perspicacious Taylor Jones. Hey, everyone. And over here is the very venerable Mr. Parsons. Mm, hello. Have we agreed to call you Mr. Parsons now since there's two former students? Is it there? there Have we there's resolved? never been any formal agreement. You've just always done it. Yeah. Okay. You can call me whatever you'd like. Taylor, what do you think about this? I think anything other than Parsons just is not natural. That's true. It's a little bit different for you because you've been out of high school for like four years. That's true. I guess we'll kick that to our 50th episode. But (laughs) this is episode 49 today, where we explore the life and philosophy of one of the best known 20th century philosophers by asking, who was John Paul Sartre? But first, guys, how's it going today? I'm good. In my uh, second year philosophy class, we were just beginning applied ethics and we're starting with medical. And so the topic they chose to discuss first is euthanasia and assisted suicide. So that's what I'm reading this weekend. Good fun for me. Anyway, how are you, Taylor? I'm good. I haven't gone back to school yet. That's next week. So I'm still home doing nothing and just like reading. Oh, what a segue. Nothing. Like Jean-Paul's great work, being in nothingness. (laughs) How are you, Andrew? I'm okay. I don't have school next week, which is, I guess, a first time ever. This morning, I got the email that my degree was officially awarded, so that's exciting. Oh, man. Congratulations. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, Is that Elvis who says that? I don't know. Um, (laughs) It was Elvis. (laughs) But yeah, I'm trying to find purpose, which I guess is another great, uh, great little segue too. So, Boy, it's all just coming together. And before we get to the show, we'd like to quickly remind you that our 50th episode, which is our next episode, will be answering your questions. So please send us the questions you'd like us to address on our socials or by email at contact at opendoorphilosophy.com. Now, on to the nausea. <laughs> All right, everybody. So today it's all about Jean-Paul Sartre. We've talked about him a bit before when we've covered existentialism, I don't know, a year and a half ago. And then, of course, we talked about Jean-Paul Sartre uh, last episode. We were talking about his life partner, Simone de Beauvoir. So today it's all about Sartre. Beauvoir may come up. Some other existentialists may come up. We'll just see. And of course, we will pass all the French pronunciations on to Taylor today. (laughs) Can I ask a question before that? Well, I, this was going to be another pronunciation question. Is it Sartre? How do you, what's the correct pronunciation, Taylor? I could not tell you on that one because names are different than like regular words. That's that's you fair. You probably pronounce like the R-E a little bit, but like so I don't like, think sucks, it's... Sucks. Yeah, I have asked people who speak French this, this word actually because, you know, when you watch YouTube videos and stuff like that or audio other podcasts... Mm-hmm. You're always interested in how they pronounce those words. So the French teacher at my school says, Sartre is fine, but technically it's Sartre, but yeah. Sartre with a French accent, which I cannot reproduce. But Sartre is perfectly acceptable. I would say the same thing. Okay. Well, Sartre, uh, very similar to Beauvoir and Camus, Jean-Paul Sartre was doing the majority of his work during, well, the majority of the work that is very well known was produced during the time leading up to World War II, during World War II, and then the next decade and a half or so after World War II. 
So we'll talk about some of those major works, but first we want to go through some background just very quickly. So Jean-Paul Sartre was born on the 21st of June in 1905 and died the 15th of April in 1980. I'll have some more to say about his death with that because I think it's, well, no, his death was interesting, but his funeral is interesting. Anyway, he did all kinds of things. So this is kind of something interesting about the mid-century existentialists. They just didn't write philosophy. He was a French playwright, a novelist, a screenwriter, a political activist, a biographer, and a literary critic, along with being a leading figure in the 20th century of French philosophy, particularly existentialism. And I want to say he's probably the best, well, he's one of the two best-known existentialists from the 20th century alongside, I would guess, Albert Camus, but that's likely because many high school students read Camus' The Stranger. <laughs> did, did both of you guys read that? I can't remember. Yes, yeah. we did. Oh, you did too, Taylor? Oh. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. <laughs> what were your takeaways from The Stranger? Mm, <laughs> you, you can go first, Taylor. <laughs> I, I don't know. I didn't really enjoy it. I thought it was uh, very strange and off-putting to read. Yeah, it's a polarizing book. I don't remember my initial reaction. I think I remember it being, I agree, very strange. It was very, it's a very alienating book, I think. Mm. Um, and very, you know, very thought provoking. It's it's very disturbing to, to think about. I, I think that mm-hmm. that's what my, um, my impressions were too. Yeah, are the Russian novels of Dostoevsky, are those considered existentialist as well? They generally are, yeah. Of course, that's pre-World War II, but yeah, yeah Dostoevsky is another big one. Crime and Punishment is often yeah. read. If a class is doing an existentialism unit, you know, you're going to get Crime and Punishment, Dostoevsky, you're going to get One Day in the Life of Ivan Denisovich, uh, you're going to get The Metamorphosis, <laughs> everyone's favorite, by Kafka, um, and then probably The Stranger. But I do think I mean, we're off topic here already, and we're like five minutes in. But I do think, um, <laughs> it's, I mean, I like The Stranger. It's a good book. It embodies a lot of those existentialist themes that we're all very familiar with. But I feel like his book, The Plague, is just a better book for people to read. I think it represents different perspectives on existentialism, just better. But hey, what do I know? <laughs> all right, next. Jean-Paul Sartre just spent his entire life in France, largely. Um, he grew up. Uh, his early life was in France. He eventually, in 1929, went to the, mm, how do we say that, Taylor? École Normale. Yes, where he met Simone de Beauvoir, who studied at the... Sorbonne. And later went on to become a noted philosopher, writer, and feminist in her own right. So if you're interested in Simone, uh, click back one episode and check it out. So these two became just really inseparable lifelong companions. They loved each other very much, although they were not famously, were not monogamous in their relationship. But aside from that, the, the last thing here that I have directly to talk about with Simone or connected directly with Simone is the first time Sartre took the aggregation test, he failed it. And remind me, Taylor, you covered Beauvoir last time. Did she fail it the first time as well? I don't think Do you remember? So. I didn't find anything about that. I don't think she did. Uh, I know she was in the top of her class with that. But mm-hmm. anyway, Sartre failed it the first time and then took it a second time and essentially tied for first place with Beauvoir on the score 
and I don't know the background on this next particular thing, but Sartre was eventually awarded first place with Beauvoir second, even though they tied. So I don't know how that played out. But either way, when you talk about a power couple, here they are. They came in first and second place, and apparently they tied. So, And again, the aggregation test was a test allowed a person to take part in, oh gosh. It was the civil service exam. That's right, the civil service exam. Yeah, 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 that's it. And also to be able to participate uh, as instructors in French education. So anyway, it's a big deal. And that was him pre-World War II. So when it comes to World War II, things begin to get dicey. I will say his first novel was Nausea. It was published in 1938. That is one year before World War II breaks out. He was drafted into the French military in 1939, one year after publishing Nausea, and then captured by the Nazis in 1940 and spent nine months as a POW in a Nazi POW camp. (laughs) And I couldn't find like some detail on this. I'm sure it's out there. But he was either released or escaped from his camp in April of 41. And then after that, he really just joins any sort of resistance against the uh, German occupation of France. So he was highly influential in anti-German organizations. For instance, one month after he was uh, out of the POW camp, he participated in the founding of the underground group. The Socialisme et Liberté. Yes, Socialism and Liberté. So, like I said, just very influential all throughout the war. He was constantly writing. Um, he was uh, he, he fought with his words. Um, and there were a number of anti-war publications, uh, anti-German publications, and he wrote heavily for those, and uh, along with Simone and a number of other French writers. So anyway, that was World War II for him. Did you guys know that he was in a, a POW camp? I did not. I did not know that either. But that's that's interesting thinking about our discussion of the impact of continental Europe on maybe existentialism. Yeah, it is. You know, when you think about these writers who were either in France or Germany or any other affected area from World War II, the ones that actually went through it, yeah, you can really see why Sartre uses the analogies that he uses and how that really influenced him and and Beauvoir. There's a number of war illusions that that Sartre makes that we'll obviously Mm -hmm. get to here in a little bit. But anyway, post-World War II, hey, it's just the sunny side of life. So he was awarded the Nobel Prize in Literature in 1964, quote, for his work rich in ideas and filled with the spirit of freedom and the quest for truth has extended a far-reaching influence on our age, close quote. So that's from the Nobel Prize Academy. But just being a Sartre, Sartre declined the prize, said that he never accepted any official honors and that he did not want the writer to become an institution. So... The Swedish Academy, well, actually, Bob Dylan's did something similar a year or two ago when he won the prize for literature, but he did accept the prize. He just didn't show up to the Academy to give a speech, although I think he sent a speech. Did you guys hear anything about that? No, that's funny. Yeah. Some of these. Bob Dylan. Well, anyway, I don't know how scandalous this was that he turned down the Nobel Prize, but the Swedish Academy did have a statement about that, and it is... It will be recalled that the laureate has made it known that he did not wish to accept the prize. 
The fact that he has declined this distinction does not in the least modify the validity of the award. Under the circumstances, however, the Academy can only state that the presentation of the prize cannot take place. So that was their official you know, response to start turning it down. And what I found is that he is the, it's the only known occasion when a laureate voluntarily accepted to decline the Nobel Prize. So there's Sartre being Sartre, I guess. Do you think there's any justification for that? I know it's not like a really massive topic to talk about, but is there any justification for just not accepting an award like that? Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> if, if, if that's what you want to do, I mean, I don't know what's, what's, what's so wrong about that. Like not human, accepting it? Yeah, cynical stoic. <laughs> well, okay, and to wrap up biography and background, Sartre, after the Nobel Prize and into the 60s, 70s, and 80s, like we said with the Beauvoir episode, they became incredibly popular figures in popular culture. But despite all that, Sartre remained a relatively simple man with few possessions and was always actively committed to causes really until the end of his life. One of those big causes was the May 1968 strikes in Paris, during which he was arrested for civil disobedience. So this is another one of those fun things when you have uh, popular figures who are arrested for their uh, protesting actions that they take. But one of my favorite things about this story is that the president at the time of France was Charles de Gaulle, who was the leader of the Free French during World War II. And when Sartre was arrested, Charles de Gaulle intervened and pardoned him and commented that, you don't arrest Voltaire. Which <laughs> is a great quote. Yeah. And uh, probably being a little funny with some of France's history there, but it does kind of show you what sort of popular influence Sartre had at the time. And then finally, to wrap it up, I said I wanted to say something about his funeral. Again, this goes to show his popularity. His funeral was on a Saturday, so maybe the weekend had something to do with it. But it was the 19th of April, 1980, and 50,000 Parisians descended onto the boulevard. Oh, dear. What boulevard is that? Boulevard du Montparnasse. Sounds good to me. They all showed up there to accompany Sartre's funeral train, basically. And there are photos, of course, of this. This is 1980. And it's just remarkable to think that the street would be lined with so many people to say goodbye to this frankly, controversial figure, but like intellectually respectable figure. And just to tie in and with another existentialist, the father of existentialism, as he is known, Soren Kierkegaard, his funeral. So I've been there. It's really, really cool. His funeral was in the National Cathedral in Copenhagen. And the church was crowded. Uh, this is a quote from someone who was there. The church was crowded long before the hour and a multitude of shabby looking people had pre- pressed forward near the coffin to see Kierkegaard. And he wrote shabby, uh, shabby looking because Kierkegaard was kind of a man of the people, if you will. He walked hours a day through Copenhagen and just was constantly talking with people. So there weren't very many state officials there because he had pissed everyone off. So, <laughs> so you mostly had the commoners there. There's some controversy at his burial as well with his nephew making a little bit of noise. But anyway, that is the background on Jean-Paul Sartre. Wasn't that exciting, guys? Very exciting. <laughs> Jean-Paul Sartre's most famous novel, Nausea, was written in 1938. And it's a novel 
largely focused, from my understanding, on the, on the protagonist of Taylor. I'm going to need you need you again <laughs> on Antoine Rocketin. Rocketin, beautiful, who has kind of an existential crisis, and like most of those, is very overwhelmed. You know, as the title would suggest, feelings of nausea that is really difficult for him to understand and to put into words or, or really even to think about. And I think he spends most of that novel thinking about his identity, his purpose in the world, thinking about his own mortality and how his life really doesn't matter in the grand scheme of things. And I think eventually he discovers some kind of appreciation for life, but that also comes with the acceptance that his life is overall very meaningless. So it sounds like an exciting, uplifting book. (laughs) (laughs) I think there's a few things to talk about with that. Something that I always like to think about with these 20th century philosophers is the medium in which they write, Mm. uh, thinking about you know, for hundreds of years, and that might be an understatement, philosophy is traditionally written in treatises or books. And I think we start seeing this injection of philosophy and literature with figures like Nietzsche, with, um, with some of his works. But what do y'all think about, we, we, we've mentioned this with Camus, but this injection of existentialism primarily in literature, how do you think that impacts the dissemination of this philosophy? What's different about this than a treatise? What, what do y'all think? I think it's very interesting, and I'd say it makes a lot of philosophy more accessible to people that aren't strictly academic, and it makes it almost more appealing to other people because they're seeing philosophical ideas presented in a way that they can almost relate to. Because in a lot of novels, the main characters are meant to be relatable in some sense. So people are able to put themselves into that position and then kind of picture how that philosophy would apply to their lives potentially and kind of getting a more practical understanding rather than just reading long works of philosophy. Yeah, it is really interesting that you point that out, Andrew. And you're right. For the most part, there are a couple of exceptions like, you know, Augustine's Confessions and, uh, and maybe Boethus' Consolations of Philosophy. And in the East, it's, it's a bit different. Uh, we have some poetry. We have some things like Confucian's Analects, which I'm not even sure what genre really to call that. And then we have the Sutras and Buddhism. But yeah, it doesn't really begin in the West until about the maybe the late 19th, if you want to throw Nietzsche in there a bit with like, thus spoke Zarathustra, yeah, which he did write to, in a sort of biblical fashion. This is an assumption on my part. You know, last episode, we were talking about Beauvoir. We were talking about how she wrote for the common woman. She did that in two different ways, right? Uh, she wrote The Second Sex, which was a mm-hmm. philosophical treatise. But then she wrote a number of novels that sort of carried out or put into play all those theories from her philosophical treatise. And Sartre does the same thing. We're going to talk about being a nothingness here in a bit. And that thing's like a 700-page philosophical work, and it's just brutal to read. (laughs) But all these ideas are encompassed in his novels and his plays and things like that. Same with Camus. Uh, The Myth of Sisyphus is about a 125-page philosophical exploration. But, you know, 
people mostly read the plague or they read trial. the stranger, the trial. Yeah. Yeah. D- does, does that lessen philosophy in any way? What do you think, Andrew? Yeah. I think the analytic tradition would certainly say so. Hmm. And there's a part of me that really thinks that it does. Not philosophy as a whole. Philosophy has been presented in a way of literature <laughs> with Plato, right? Mm, yeah. Plato is literature, and it's presented in, in, a, in a story. And I, so I don't think that the medium necessarily diminishes philosophy's role or philosophy's presence or, or whatever. What I will say, though, is... It's very difficult, I think, in literature to string together arguments in a way treatises do. Mm-hmm. So you lose some of that logical consistency. You lose some of that clarity, which philosophy has always, at least analytic philosophy, has always prized itself on, this clarity of argument, clarity of mm-hmm. thought. And so you lose some of that. Now, how that speaks to the medium, not to the medium, but to the genre to the subfield, to the philosophy of existentialism. I don't know. I think there's also, like Taylor was mentioning, this uh, pedagogical aspect that these pieces of literature, they pull us into the story. We can relate to the characters. We can think about them. We can internalize their feelings and really relate to them and reread them very easily. And it makes an impact on us the first time in a way that a work of Kant or Hume might not (laughs) on the first go around. So I think there's something there. Do I think it diminishes it in the existentialist form? Yes. That was a great rant. Yeah, this really comes down to a question of philosophical methodology and the question of like, what is philosophy or how should philosophy be done? I would say, you know, the, the, the beauty of fiction and poetry and, and song lyrics and all those types of things is the most meaningful books and songs and poetry that we read often deal with philosophical issues, right? It's definitely a gateway or an entryway to philosophical thinking. I mean, all of these books that we're reading with are dealing with largely existentialist questions. Is there a God? What comes in the afterlife? Mm -hmm. What is love? You know, how should we act in certain situations, which is ethics? But yeah, you're right. There's, it's hard to sustain an argument in a work of fiction it can be done by using characters, but then all of a sudden you, you kind of end up back where, where Plato or how Plato writes. Can I say something real quick too? Yeah. I think the point though too, when I say that it's it's not analytical and it fails to it fails to um, present these really clear and logical arguments, I think that's really the point of some of this existentialist work. We mentioned this distinction last week between the continental and the analytical. This literature, it's focusing on the experience, the human experience, which is inherently not logical. It's inherently more about experience. It's laughing at the, abs- at, at the absurdity of the world, you know? And that's not captured in, in logic or in, uh, in syllogism. Uh, so there <laughs> is something, there's something really beautiful about that. So I don't want to make it I don't want to diminish, you know, the lack of logic, you know. There's something really beautiful here. So, as I mentioned just a minute before, in 1943, Sartre writes really what is his best-known philosophical treatise. It's called Being and Nothingness, and it's 700 pages. One of my favorite quotes I heard from an editor once who had just recently translated 
being in nothingness. This was about three or four years ago. And she said, like many great thinkers, Sartre could have benefited from an editor (laughs) because there's a lot of repetition in that book. And there's a lot of repetition in many philosophical treatises, if you think about it. And some of those writers probably could have used someone to come along and say, you know what, you could tighten up this language a little bit. But anyway, all that being said, being in nothingness is a classic and it is the go-to for existentialists post-World War II in the 20th century. So what we see in all of his works is just sort of a rehashing of the same themes in different ways. Now, being in nothingness, very similar to, say, like the myth of Sisyphus from Camus, being in nothingness was a philosophical or an attempt to philosophically argue for these positions. And so anyway, without going into a lot of detail, the main thesis of being in nothingness is that human beings are fundamentally nothingness, or anyway, they lack a type of being, which ultimately gives them the freedom to define themselves and their identities. But looping back to nausea, it is this ultimate freedom which creates existential nausea, which is what the character nausea is going through. But it's it's really more of a philosophical unpacking of those ideas where he attempts to argue for it. And that brings us to Existentialism Humanism, which came out three years later, post-World War II. It was published in 1946, but the lecture was given in 1945. So Rev Taylor, tell us a bit about that. Yeah, so Sartre gave this lecture in Paris at the Club Matinon, and It came on the heels of the publication of two other novels, The Age of Reason and The Reprieve, which shocked conformists of the day. In the character, Matthew has little moorings and lacks confidence. His sole asset is his obstinate search for a genuinely free life. And in this lecture, Sartre says, I think what bothers people about my characters is their lucidity. They know what they are, and that is what they chose to be. So the Age of Reason and the Reprieve were supposed to be part of a, I want to say, a four novel series with the same character. Anyway, it caused, yeah, it caused a lot of upheaval because probably very similar how you guys feel about the main character and the stranger. Mm, what was his name? Merceau? So the reaction was like, he just, and very similar, frankly, to the character in Nausea, just so sort of empty and but you got to have that emptiness to fill it with meaning and anyway this is why he gave this lecture he wanted to respond to his critics and so the two sources we're going to talk about most when we talk about his theories uh, are being a nothingness and existentialism is a humanism so major theories that we see appear repeatedly in many of Sartre's works and this sounds familiar with anyone who is aware of existentialism so Enormous claim, which is made in a way in being in nothingness, but really comes to prominence in existentialism as a humanism. But the phrase is existence precedes essence. And then by extension, we get some other main themes and ideas like radical free will, uh, existential nausea, bad faith, acting in bad faith, which is a big one we'll talk about. And then, of course, authenticity. So, Back to existence precedes essence. What do you think Sartre means by by this? What, what is he even talking about? Do you have some essence that is you before you are born or that you are born with? <laughs> One of the oldest questions in philosophy. When I think about 
the idea of an essence preceding existence. I think about Aristotle with a teleological kind of purpose of things in the world. Telos in Greek just means kind of the purpose, the ultimate purpose, the aim of a thing, the goal, as given by nature, as given by God. It's just kind of the purpose of a thing. And so everything Aristotle argues, as it exists in the world, has some kind of aim. For example, we had one example a long time ago, Mr. Parsons. Do you remember what that was? I think it was a car. Was it a car? <laughs> you know, I've done so many examples over the last couple of years. I can't quite remember. I'm like apples, coffee mugs, yeah. cars, horses. <laughs> you know, a coffee mug. Tables and chairs. Yeah, that might not be bad. Yeah, that's a, that's a great idea, Taylor. Let's use a chair, the teleology of a chair. That's a really easy example. Now, let's think of a chair that's not like a, a weird chair in a museum or like, I don't know, just a standard chair. What's the purpose of a chair? Well, probably it's to provide, you know, in whatever context that chair is used for. We can think about a lot of chairs, like a sofa chair or like a dining room chair. But its purpose is to sit. And its purpose is to sit in a way that I guess is in accordance with whatever specific kind of chair it is but its purpose is to be sat in. So when we think of a thing's essence preceding its existence, it has that purpose before it exists, before it comes into being, and that's kind of guiding the existence and how it should be in the world. And we can measure how, I guess, successful a thing's existence is based on how much it accords to its essence. And since humans exist in the world and they're created by nature, Aristotle would say that things' essence precedes its existence, including humans. Is that fine? Is that a fine? No, that's great. Okay, great. Well, you know, Sartre would be PO'd by that. <laughs> The idea that existence precedes essence is very appealing in a way because it gives you all this freedom, supposedly, to create yourself. And it gives, like, blank slate, you can do kind of whatever you want, take yourself in whatever direction. I think it's a very interesting idea, but I don't know how well that necessarily holds up in actuality. Well, I think one of my criticisms is we're, we're kind of talking about when we talk about maybe what's, what Sartre is talking about in terms of freedom to create your life, we might also be thinking about identity, who we are as people. And is identity necessarily equatable or does identity equate with purpose as you're talking, Andrew? Like, can you still have this life purpose, but at the same time create your identity through freedom? But then also that may be completely opposite of what Sartre means, or not go as far as what Sartre means. He might be like, there's no purpose at all, which I think is probably his stance. But is there a middle road there? I'm not a sociologist, but I would bet that there is some research out there that I'm almost certain there's research out there that says how we are brought up, the aspects of ourself that we can't control, like our, our race, the social socioeconomic position we are born into where we are born into in the world in terms of geography, what language we speak, what time. I think those all have a tremendous impact on on who we become. It seems to me that we really don't have much of an impact on, on those effects. Maybe we can counter those effects later in life, and some people really do try to 
distance themselves from certain of those aspects, but I think those do play a, a pretty big part in our life. Well, let's see what Sartre had to say about it. In Existentialism is a Humanism, he says this, quote, What is meant here by saying that existence precedes essence? It means, first of all, man exists, turns up, appears on the scene, and only afterwards defines himself. If a man, as the existentialist conceives him, is indefinable, it is because at first he is nothing. Only afterward will he be something, and he himself will have made what he will be. There's a couple other quotes that support that as well. He also says, if existence really does precede essence, there is no explaining things away by reference to a fixed and given human nature. In other words, there is no determinism. Man is free. Man is freedom. I think one of the attractive things about Sardis is writing so powerful. It's very engaging (laughs) and filled with passion. So is there any value in existentialism and its ideas and its theories uh, if we don't buy into existence precedes essence. I don't think you can discount necessarily all of existentialism by saying that like one premise may not be necessarily true because I think there's still a lot of important ideas under existentialism that can kind of exist not necessarily dependent on the idea that existence precedes essence. Like if you're talking about, you know, radical free will or you can take those ideas in different directions, then existence precedes essence and like continuously becoming like Simone de Beauvoir argues doesn't have to be from a place of completely creating an essence from existence. If you have an opinion. Oh, no, no, no. Go ahead. Feel free to go. No, no. I. I I haven't let, you haven't offered your opinion on anything in a while, so. <laughs> oh, I see. Well, no, I don't think the entirety of existentialism or what is beneficial from the philosophy of existentialism hangs on this one particular premise. If you dismiss this premise, uh, there are still some valuable things that I think are existentially and even logically tenable. Um, there are certain aspects of our life, which, Andrew, you're very right about, and Sartre and Beauvoir both address these. There is a number of things about our life that we cannot change. You know, we cannot change who we're born to, cannot change what country we're born, into, we're born in, like you said, socioeconomic situations, all that sort of stuff. And that is what they call like our givenness or our factfulness. But they do say you are responsible for the person who you are, despite that. And this is a classic argument, especially in law. When someone breaks the law, you know, oftentimes we look at the conditions that they grew up in and we're like, oh, well, how responsible for that action are they really because they grew up in these terrible circumstances? <laughs> but Sartre says, well, the answer to that question is you're entirely responsible. Now, we can argue whether or not that's a right way to look at it, but that is his assertion. Um, so it doesn't necessarily dismiss those background, that background information that's important in someone's biography. But he's like, you are something more than your biography, and you're responsible for that. And that brings here, <laughs> can I bring in radical free will? So another famous phrase that he uses, which is, of course, just so dramatically Sartrean, <laughs> man is condemned to be free. He says in being a nothingness, man is condemned to be free because once thrown into the world, he is responsible for everything he does. It is up to you to give life a meaning. 
And another just really controversial statement. I think it's in that same passage, maybe a page or two later, he says, we all have the war we deserve. And of course, he's making reference to World War II. And people in World War II were like, ah, oh, this isn't our fault. I can't believe this is happening. But Sark turns around and says, look, you're responsible for this war. You are a part of this event that's going on. And yes, you can choose to remove yourself from this event, this war that's going on in your country by all kinds of different means. You can flee, you can become a refugee, you can, of course, opt out with suicide. But ultimately, this is your war. And it's the war that you deserve. Not deserve like you were bad and this is your punishment, but deserve in terms that you're entirely responsible for how you engage with the world. And so your choices create that war. And so... (laughs) Uh, He also, I mean, as long as we're throwing out controversial phrases uh, or quotes, he also says there's no such thing as innocent victims. And students have a really hard time with that particular claim. Again, he argues for all these positions in being in nothingness, but these are like the hot quotes that get people hopped up. So all this to say is we have radical free will, not not just sort of free will, not that we have some choices in our life, not that we can make some choices in our life. It's that existence is entirely libertarian. There is no determinism you have free will, period, and you're responsible for what you do with it. Oh, gosh. From my understanding, he also talks about how, as humans, we have projects as, like, part of our life, and we're free to jump from project to project and, like, create a new facet of our identity, like, as we go forward. But I really like where Simone de Beauvoir stands on this, how she says that, yes, we do have the freedom to change directions, change projects, do something else with our lives, but we also can't escape our own past. And I think that's a good balance between, yes, we do have freedom to act, but we're not free from the consequences of our actions and from what that makes our identity. It's interesting. I'm I'm just now having this thought. Uh, I'm sure someone's written something on it. It seems like in a way that Simone de Beauvoir is kind of Jean-Paul Sartre's apologist, that she comes along after his writings and then reorients some of his stronger points to something that perhaps is a little more tenable. I I don't want to say that she's Jean-Paul Sartre's apologist. I think her philosophy stands on Mm -hmm. its own. But I do think, despite the fact that she was his life partner, I do think Jean-Paul Sartre's philosophical ideas at the time when she was writing was also some of the most powerful and potent or powerful and prominent ideas in philosophy at that time coming out of World War II. So uh, not as apologist, but had to contend with his ideas. And she does take some of his ideas, challenges them, and then attempts to approve them. All right, to move on to one of Sartre's other arguments, we're now going to discuss bad faith which Sartre defines as any moment in our life where we deny our own complicity in a situation or when we ignore the choices available to us all the time. So, for example, he talks about refusing to accept responsibility for the consequences of one's past choices and actions. In Being in Nothingness, he says, quote, man is nothing else but what he makes of himself, end quote. Additionally, he talks about refusing to accept responsibility for one's future choices and the possibility of change. 
So kind of finding a balance between the past and the future. He says, again in being in nothingness, quote, but he struggles with all his strength against the crushing view that his mistakes constitute for him a destiny. So in this, we're kind of seeing Sartre argue that your past doesn't fully constrain your future because you're still free to choose to be different than you may believe you can be. And then finally, he argues that ignoring the factical dimension of every situation is part of bad faith. So you can't just wish for silly things. He says, quote, you are your life and nothing else. Yeah. And so, again, we're coming back to this theme of free will and responsibility. And any time we act contrary to that, we're acting in bad faith. So, so let me give you an example. I'll give you one example from the novel Nausea, actually. The character gives an example of a waiter. And I'd like to give a different example because maybe this isn't one that really resonates with everyone. But this waiter, and maybe you have had this experience, this waiter is being too much a waiter. <laughs> like, like he's trying too hard. You know, he comes up to the table and he describes how like the waiter is just a little extra in how he's talking to his patrons. He leans forward just a little too much. He's just a little too exuberant. You can tell that the waiter is playing a role rather than yeah. just being his authentic waiter self. Now, of course, there are times in society when we do play a bit of a role because that uh, greases the gears of, of social acceptance and those types of things. But acting in bad faith is really any time that you're just not being, that you're acting in a way that's inauthentic to your freedom and responsibility. Another good example is probably you can think of just the life that you live um, in certain situations, in certain, in different arenas, you might act completely different. You act differently. You act differently at church as opposed to how you would act at school, as opposed to how you would act in a courtroom if you're on trial or something. And you could argue like the pros and cons of inhabiting those roles. But when you're doing that, you're acting in bad faith because what you're really trying to do is find the exit door from accepting your responsibility of free will. That's really an interesting because there seems to be this, there's so much emphasis in, um, in Sard on the individual. The individual's freedom provides much of their, I guess, their drive or I was going to say their freedom provides their freedom, but that makes no sense. There's just so, so much rejection against these roles. One of my favorite philosophers, Alistair McIntyre, has this book review on a book of this guy who's looking at Sartre's work, and McIntyre's really big onto communal aspects, on communal roles, how an individual plays a role in the community. And his big thing in that is that this individual, and, and I kind of, last week, you can go back to hear my rant last week with Beauvoir, but this total rejection of roles is something that McIntyre's so worried about because when we take on such an individualistic identity, I think that uh, we tend to lose the social context that we're brought up in and the roles that we're playing in, commu in a community. Community is really important, um, I think, and, and McIntyre argues too, and that when we kind of alienate ourselves from a role that we could be playing in a community to better it. That's really cutting ourselves from an authentic moral behavior. 
I forget if we mentioned this in this episode, but McIntyre argues that a lot of this estrangement from, maybe we were about to talk about this, our estrangement from the ability for clear moral decisions, the fact that moral decisions seem so uh, ambiguous for us. The reason for that is because we have cut ourselves off from these roles in the community, which I think is really fascinating. I think is true, but we can talk about that in a second. I don't know. What what do y'all think? I, I get I guess that's an okay moment for, for this since we're talking about Oh no, it's great. But what what do you think about Sartre is certainly not into roles, but how, what do y'all think about roles? What role do roles uh, play in our life? <laughs> you know, they provide a nice little template for us for sure, but is there something beyond that? I think it seems like a lot of people feel more confined by their role that they're you know, kind of prescribed in society rather than liberated by it, if that makes sense. That we think of our like prescribed role as something that we have to fulfill in a specific way when maybe like to develop a more a stronger community, we don't have to be confined by a role, but take that and make it into something that's more beneficial, if that makes sense. Yeah, it'd be interesting what Sartre would say about his definition of this word role as the way we're using it. I'm going to speak for him. <laughs> so, okay, let's take let's take the waiter example again, right? So that's, is that what you would call a role, Andrew? Yeah. Okay, so this is his job. He's a waiter and he should do waiter things when he's a waiter, right? Yeah. Yeah, like you wouldn't want to employ a waiter who like goes up to people's tables and be like, hi, uh, I'm not going to take your order. Have a nice day. I know that's, that's, that's what waiters do. They take your order and they serve you, right? Yeah. So can you be inauthentic while also performing that role? I guess is the, is the question I have. Like, is there an authentic way mm. to perform that role in an inauthentic way? I guess also another way to say it is by inhabiting or carrying out a role, does that necessarily mean that you're being inauthentic? I don't know. Let's do a little another thought experiment for a second with this waiter role example. Think of the best waiter that you've ever had. They probably come to the table the right amount. Uh, you know, they sweep up the crumbs from the crackers you eat on the table, whatever. They come to fill up your water. I guess they don't really do that, but they keep checking in on you the right amount of times, you know, whatever. And you're just like, geez, at the end of that meal, you're, you're like, you know, they, they weren't too talkative. They were a really good waiter. <laughs> And I think that a lot's informing that. Perhaps they're just a good person normally, but I think from how I see it, kind of studied what makes a, a waiter good. And the fact that they can be a good waiter originates from them playing into this role, not inauthentically, but just a full acceptance of that role. They've studied what the role is and uh, that makes them really good at their job. It's provided them a purpose. And I think without thinking about, then take that kind of opposite approach. If there's a waiter who doesn't really know what a waiter's supposed to be, it seems like they'd be kind of, I don't want to use the word blind, but they'd be kind of lost. They'd be kind of lost without that role, without that tradition. You know, that's the word that McIntyre would use, that tradition informing them. It would just seem like a really lost and scary place, right? Like they'd how many times do I go up to this table and ask? 
how they're doing, you know? Where do I grab the plate when I serve them? Like, those are all very important things. And I'd just be very lost without that tradition informing me. I don't know if what uh, what, uh, what I said makes any no, sense. No, I'm loving it. <laughs> Thinking of those poor waiter. <laughs> yeah. The cave of I, ignorance. I would, just be, I would just be so lost, wouldn't you? Like, if, if you never oh, sure. had a waiter in your life. Sure. And I'm just thinking... This poor, these poor humans, like if you're, I don't know, if there's no roles, you're not playing into any roles. As a human being, I would feel very, very lost, feel very, very lost and scared. I think that you can play a role or like fulfill a role in a way where it's a facet of your identity without allowing it to become your identity. So you're remaining authentic and not just conforming only to your role as like, Maybe it's your job, like being a waiter doesn't have to be your entire identity or even if it's a social role, like being a mother or a daughter or a friend doesn't have to consume your identity to where you're only comprised of your role that you serve in a particular area. And that's how you remain authentic because if you're not fulfilling something to yourself, I think that's when we lose our individual identity. Okay, well, let me give a a counter-argument example. A counter-thought experiment to your counter-thought experiment. (laughs) Okay, so here's something surely we all have experience with. I'm a teacher, so everyone's had teachers. And so when new teachers come on to the job and I'm asked to mentor them or they ask for advice or whatever, one of my first pieces of advice is be yourself. Be yourself in the classroom because those students will sniff out a fake in a heartbeat and then they'll persecute you for it. Like, don't be inauthentic with those kids. Those kids hate it. Now, that being said, you also have to fulfill the role of a teacher. You have to do the things that a teacher is supposed to do, right? So we have some, and we can think of this equating with like a waiter, right? Like you have to take attendance, you know, you want to do that at the beginning, not at the end. You know, there's all these things you want to, you know, if there's a hall pass, you got to fill it out right. You know, when someone comes to the door, you have to open it. Like all these types of technical things that a teacher should do to fulfill that function. And of course you should teach the content that you're supposed to teach that day. But then it becomes a bit of an art form after that because mm-hmm. like the delivery of the instruction and how you interact with students is the art of teaching, if you will. And if you're worried about student behavior or if you're worried about how they're going to react to a certain situation or a comment that someone's made or something, you might act in a way or say something in a way that maybe you wouldn't actually say it that particular way if you weren't worried about those things. So in that way, I don't know how you like you're not yourself when you're teaching in a classroom. I don't really know how to say exactly how you're not being yourself. But man, let me tell you, when when a teacher isn't just being true to themselves, it, it seems so forced. And when it seems forced, when instruction seems forced, kids check out mm-hmm. like they're done. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It's just another example I thought of when you're talking about a waiter, because there are these technical things that teachers and waiters must do. But then there's the art of being a waiter, right? Knowing exactly how many times to check on the table. Maybe noticing like body cues, uh, body language from your patrons that like, oh, they need us. Or you you, can't see what I'm saying, Andrew? I guess it goes back to the whole like, can you be authentic in a role? Mm. Yeah, I think that certainly makes sense. But in the back of my mind, I, I think 
I don't, I'm not a teacher, obviously, but did you, did you have a teacher who was really good to you? Mr. Parsons, like was like a very inspirational teacher for you when you were growing up oh, sure. in college or even working with. Yeah. Yeah. I think that there's some tradition that you have experienced and that made an impact on you as a student or maybe a teacher too. And I th- think that tradition probably plays into how you think a good teacher should be. I think that's great. And uh, I don't know what Sartre would say about this, but um, McIntyre would would argue that that tradition has made you. It's important not to deny that tradition's impact on your teaching style or your identity, and is really informing you, again, with all your different experiences. And I think your unique identity, but that tradition's the important part. It's informing on how you think about what a good teacher is. And I think you are a, a good teacher. Yeah, that's just framing you for, that tradition is framing you on uh on how you should be in that role. Yeah, it's really inter- like it's, it's just interesting to me trying to square authenticity with these ideas of roles. I mean, is authenticity an important thing for human beings to have? I don't, I don't want to keep ranting, but I uh, feel like I think authenticity is important, but I think total authenticity it just be such a scary, such a scary life, such a scary world with the rejection of all of all tradition and. And roles and stuff. I don't know. What do you think, Taylor? I think being authentic is very important, not only for ourselves, but the way we relate to other people. I think that the more authentic or vulnerable a connection with somebody else is, the stronger it can be. And the more both people get out of that connection, the more authentic and the more we share our true selves with other people and stop trying to act as something that we may not be or even if it's somebody or like a role that we want to fill just accepting ourselves as we are and then sharing that with others is the most beneficial well all right everybody that's going to be about it for today's episode thank you so much for taking responsibility in listening to this episode That's right. And we'd love to hear from you, whether that be on our socials, on Twitter or Instagram, or our email at contact at opendoorphilosophy.com. And that's a really good reminder about our upcoming episode number 50, where we discuss questions. So please send them to our email or on our social media page. We would really love to hear your questions. We can answer them on our next podcast. Super exciting. And as always, we thank Kevin McLeod for the use of his free music. You hear it in the intro and the outro, and uh, it's good stuff. And as always, remember, when your life is in need of some philosophy, the door is always open. See you later.